He was born in humble Texas of all places. You spell it humble, but in Texas they say humble. Yet the H was not silent in either of his names. He was known for pearls of earthly wisdom like these. Play everyone off against each other so that you have more avenues of action open to you. Never make a decision. Let someone else make it. And then if it turns out to be the wrong one, you can disclaim it. And finally, he said, I intend to be the greatest golfer in the world, the finest film producer in Hollywood, the greatest pilot in the world, and the richest man in the world. There was nothing humble about this man. He let his cravings drive him to extremes. His life was full of achievements, including playing to a two handicap, winning an Academy Award, and being awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Yet Howard Hughes became better known for his eccentric behavior and his reclusive lifestyle. He was quoted as saying, I'm not a paranoid deranged millionaire, expletive deleted. I'm a paranoid deranged billionaire. The writer of the book of James wants to point out the difference between the earthly wisdom of a Howard Hughes and the heavenly wisdom that guides our lives as Christians. Hear this challenging good news from James chapter three and four in the message. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish plotting. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or to get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Let us pray. Gracious God, may these words take root in our hearts and minds in these challenging days. Amen. Our youngest son, Paul, starts the next chapter of his life today in Seattle without me. He seeks a master's in civil engineering at the University of Washington, but he's never been to Seattle before. Pray for his mom. She's out there with him. I'm so thankful she's already had her third vaccination as she travels. Paul's been living with us since we moved here, and I will miss him greatly. This is my child, whose email address is refill of all things. He roots for the football and basketball teams of his mother's native New Orleans, but for baseball, he's always rooted for my hapless Pittsburgh Pirates. 
Talk about futility. They did not have a winning season for the first 19 years of his life. Every year for his birthday in March, he would ask for a Pirates jersey. Year after year, his favorite players would get traded away. We could almost count on it. Buy him a jersey and his favorite player would be with a different team the next year. Finally, we solved it. We bought him a Roberto Clemente jersey with number 21 on the back. Now, I love it when the Braves win, but my heart will always be with the Pirates. For I trace that love to one player, the great one, Roberto Clemente, the greatest right fielder of all time. I know some of you might say Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron, but defensively, Clemente won 12 gold gloves with his cannon of an arm. He developed it by cutting sugarcane in his native Puerto Rico. Clemente's 12.2 defensive wins against replacement is the highest for any right fielder in Major League history. As a kid, I remember imitating his famous basket catch out there in right field, perhaps not realizing that in Little League, being in right field was not a compliment to my abilities. Major League Baseball celebrated Roberto Clemente Day this past Wednesday, honoring his life of philanthropy and service to others. Clemente was originally signed by the Dodgers, but the Dodgers left him unprotected in the Rule 5 draft. A faithful Methodist knew of Clemente's talent and picked him up for the Pirates. That faithful Methodist was Branch Rickey, who also gave Jackie Robinson his chance, changing the world, changing baseball. When Clemente came to spring training in 1969, the the Pirates had just built Pirate City. It was basically for minor leaguers. All the major leaguers stayed over at Longboat Key, but Clemente wouldn't do that. Even though the food was horrible and the accommodations were barely adequate, he stayed there. He was asked, why do you stay there? And he just shrugged his shoulders humbly. Clemente was staying there for the young Latino players. Every night after dinner, he would sit in front of the building and teach the players his simple wisdom. Simple things like how to order off a menu and how to communicate with the other players. He did that every spring and no one reported on that selflessness. Broadcaster Vin Scully remarked, Clemente could field a ball in New York and throw a guy out in Pennsylvania. In contrast to Howard Hughes, Clemente's wisdom included this quote, anytime you have the opportunity to make the world, to make a difference in the world and you don't, then you're wasting your time on earth. I have to believe Clemente read and lived the book of James. For James, wisdom is only real when you put it into action by living well, living wise, and living humbly. Clemente humbly dedicated his 3,000th hit to the fans of Pittsburgh and to the people of Puerto Rico to live well, to live wise, and to live humbly. Clemente was not always able to fully communicate his thoughts in English to the media of that day, but James reminds us it's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. James is basically saying you cannot brag about your humility. That's not how humility works. For real wisdom comes from getting along with each other. You can only develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Earthly wisdom craves more for itself. Heavenly wisdom craves more for the community, for others. 
Years ago, when Robert Fulgham taught high school philosophy, he always began the course with a game of musical chairs. He simply told the students when they walked into class the first day, arrange your chairs and get ready for musical chairs. No student ever asked why, ever. No student ever asked how to play. They all knew the rules. They arranged the seats in alternating directions and then stood around the chairs waiting for the music to begin. These were high school seniors who hadn't played musical chairs since second grade, but they jumped right into the game without hesitation. After removing a few chairs, Fulgham stopped the music. There was a mad scramble for the remaining chairs. Those without chairs were completely stunned. They knew how the game worked. The music stops, you get a chair. How could they not have a chair so soon? They had that, how dumb can I be look on their faces and glumly moved over to the wall. Losers, out of the game. The music starts up again, more chairs are removed. The music stops and students go crazy trying to get a chair this time. And as the game goes on, the quest for chairs turns more and more serious. Down to two members of the wrestling team who are willing to push, knee, kick, bite, whatever they need to do to be the last person in the chair. This is war and the music stops. By jerking the chair out from under his opponent, one guy slams down into the last chair, a look of triumph on his face, hands raised high, signaling he is number one. Howard Hughes would have been so proud. The last student in the last chair always acted as if the class admired him and his accomplishment. He got the chair. I'm a winner. I'm the winner. But how wrong that winner was. Everyone else lined up against the wall just thought he was a jerk. Admiration hardly. Contempt is what they felt. This was not just a game anymore. Weren't games supposed to be fun? This got too serious too fast. Like high school gets too serious too fast and real life gets way serious too fast. James understood our tendency to overreact. Something is said to us at volume two and we hear it at volume 11. The teacher asked them, do you want to play again? A few of the athletes said, sure, but not the rest of the class. And yet Fulgham insisted, play this one more time, but with one rule change. Musical chairs is before, but this time, if you don't have a chair, you just sit down on someone else. Everyone stays in the game. It's only a matter of where you sit and the students are thinking, well, okay. The chairs are reset, students stand ready, music starts and they march, chairs are removed, stop. There's a pause in the action, the students are really thinking it over now. Do I want a chair to myself? Do I want to sit on someone's lap or have someone sit in mine and who? The class gets seated, but now the mood is totally changed. The room is totally different. There's laughter, there's giggling. They think this might be fun. And when the number of chairs is sufficiently reduced to force two to a chair, a new dimension of grace enters into the room as the role of sitter and city is clarified. Oh, please, after you. No, no, after you. Some advanced planning is evident as the opportunity to sit in the lap of a particular person is anticipated. As the game continues and more and more people must share one chair, a kind of gymnastic dance form develops. It becomes a group accomplishment to get everyone branched out onto knees. Students with organizational skills start to pre-plan. It's a people puzzle to solve now. When there's one chair left, the class laughs and shouts in delight as they all somehow manage to use one chair for support. But almost always, if they tumbled over, they'd get up and try it again until everyone is sitting on one chair. It's a triumphal moment for all. 
Now, the only person who had a hard time with this paradigm shift was the guy who won the first time under the old rules. He lost his bearings. He didn't know what winning was now. James is trying to change our view of winning for our cravings to win can be so costly when we just have to get the better of others. Things fall apart and everyone ends up at each other's throats. When there are diminishing resources, do we listen to heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom? As a final step in the process, Fulgham has one more trick up his sleeve. Okay, let's play one more round. The music will play, you will march around, but this time I'm taking away the last chair. When the music stops, you'll all sit down, but not on the floor. The students say, that can't be done. And Fulgham says, yes, it can. So once more, they marched and stopped. What now? He lines them up in a circle and says, put your hands on the hips of the person in front of you and on the count of three, very carefully guide the person onto your knees at the same time as you carefully sit down on the knees of the person behind you. Ready? One, two, three, sit. They all sit without any chair, relying on each other for support. I think this is the kind of community James wants us to build. Even when it feels like there's nowhere to sit for me, we can lean on each other. We can lean on our faith. We can lean on the God who made us. Fulgham has played this chair game in this way with different groups of all ages in different settings. And he says the experience is always the same for this really isn't kid stuff. And the questions raised by musical chairs are always the same. Why do we tend to make winners and losers? How can we keep everyone in the game? Do we still have what it takes to find a better way? I think we do. And James describes this better way in simple terms. So often it's not the problem itself that has us at each other's throats, but how we frame the problem, how we see the problem. James is challenging us to see it in a better way. Are you listening to earthly wisdom or heavenly wisdom? Earthly wisdom says, I deserve. Heavenly wisdom says, I will serve. Earthly wisdom is selfish, concentrating on self more, what I want. Heavenly wisdom is selfless. James asks about the conflicts we face. Do you know where conflicts come from? Do you? Think about that a minute. Where do the conflicts in your life come from? James states it pretty clearly. Our conflicts come because we want our own way. Because I insist on my own way, I create conflict both inside of me and with other people. When I insist on my own way, I push aside everyone else's way. And that is where I like to point out the difference between being assertive and being aggressive. Earthly wisdom is aggressive, clawing for that last seat when the music stops, making my wants so much more important than yours. To be aggressive is to get into someone else's space. To be assertive, though, is to define oneself well. To say, here I am, I, here I stand, I can do no other. It's a healthy exercise. But James says our cravings can make us aggressive. And I might add passive aggressive, but that's a sermon for another day. James says our cravings are the source of our conflicts within ourselves and the source of our conflicts with others. Like Katie Lang sang, constant cravings have always been. Cravings are nothing new. Cravings are more compelling, though, than most of our thoughts. Just because you think it, though, doesn't mean you have to act upon it. So we ask, how do we halt our cravings? 
James notes that our cravings can get the best of us. Our cravings may start small, but they explode in overreactions. They start at volume two, but quickly escalate to volume 11 if we don't tend to our cravings at the beginning. James states it quite simply. We don't get what we want and then we kill. Wait, what? That's quite a leap. We don't get what we want and it leads to murder? I don't think James is talking about literally killing someone, but it does happen. You crime, true crime addicts out there can attest to that. But often our cravings do lead to destructive behavior. It makes me think of our on-demand society. I want something, so I'm willing to kill to make it happen now. People have a craving, a want, so they kill a few trees, otherwise known as those Amazon boxes that show up at your house. They have a craving, a want, so they kill a few brain cells to get some relief. They have a craving that then kills a relationship or jeopardizes a friendship. Just a few cutting words and the relationship lies slain upon the floor. You remember taming the tongue, right? Or we covet what someone else has and we do violence. We do damage to ourselves and our relationships. We want what someone else has and we lose perspective. So how do we deal with the cravings in our lives? James suggests we do not have because we do not ask or we ask wrongly. We so often set it up as a limited resource problem. When there is one less chair, I need it for me. We can't share it. We've stopped thinking that we're all in this together. So we focus on what we don't have and then what we don't have seems to grow and grow rather than focusing on what we do have, how we've been blessed and how to share those blessings. Jane Cox shared with me a story recently about a guy who came to visit a homeless man under a pier and brought him Vienna sausages and sardines for dinner. The visitor asked, how would you describe what you're eating? And the man under the pier said, isn't it obvious I'm eating sardines and Vienna sausages here in the sand? And the visitor said, oh no, I think we're eating surf and turf with an ocean view. It's all a matter of perspective. James encourages us to ask God for what we need. So if we're craving something that is good for us, ask God to deliver that to you. But if you're craving something destructive, ask God to help deliver you from it. Karen Drexler in our church is one of the wisest people I know. Her work helps people to deal with cravings. And she told me this week, suggest that people call a halt when they feel cravings bubbling up within. HALT, it's a helpful, helpful acronym for me. Don't let yourself get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. I added hurt, anxious, lustful, or troubled, but they both work. These negative emotional states are common triggers for our cravings, and these triggers allow us to act on our cravings in destructive ways. When we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, or some combination of those, it's difficult for us to push back against those triggers. We're left open and vulnerable, and those things start small and they escalate. Our cravings cause us to overreact and overindulge. Even a strong urge will pass if you let it. But how do you let it pass? Karen suggested several techniques we can practice. You can be distracted, take a run or a walk, listen to music or a podcast, watch a show, play with your dogs. Or discussion, talk about your craving with God or with a supportive friend. Or some people just dance with the craving. They don't lean away from it, causing more desist resistance. They lean in and go deep into the feelings without acting on the urge. And finally, 
she said, don't top, stop the tape early. Play the tape all the way through of what happened last time you gave in to that craving and recall the negative consequences of what happened when you gave in. James wants us to play the tape all the way through. James is flashing a warning sign in front of us to recognize what triggers us, to avoid those triggers when possible, to call a halt, and to be able to cope with those triggers when necessary through distraction, discussion, dancing, and not stopping the tape. James wants us to recognize our triggers, taking a breath to be slow to anger, tasting our words before we spit them out to tame our tongues and calming our cravings before they destroy us and destroy people that we love. When faced with cravings, it can sometimes feel like we have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. A friend of David Melton said, that's not true for him. He says, I have two devils, one on each shoulder, which means we need wisdom from above even more. Yet just because I have a thought does not mean I have to act on it. James says, in the midst of our cravings and our struggles, say a quiet yes to God and God will draw near to you. But sometimes we have to shout at our cravings, halt, who goes there? You sly devil, go away. May we learn to halt. Asking ourselves the question, am I letting my hunger, my anger, my loneliness, my tiredness lead me in the wrong direction? Do you let yourself get drawn into a game of musical chairs, thinking I can only have if I take from you? Help people to see the situation differently. Don't let a lack of chairs come between you and another person made in the image of God. You know, there are two types of people in the world. Those who crave closure... I'm just kidding. In closing, I think back to a clear memory from when I was eight years old. Nicaragua suffered a devastating earthquake on December 23rd, 1972. It left incredible damage throughout the capital of Managua. The cathedral clock stopped there at 12.27 a.m. Just two weeks later, earlier, Roberto Clemente had been in Nicaragua for the Amateur World Series. Clemente pleaded with the people of Puerto Rico to give donations to take to the earthquake victims. But then Clemente had heard reports that the donations that he sent in the first couple waves were not being distributed to the people who needed them the most. And as things got worse, he, in, he, in, he insisted on seeing the next shipment be taken there himself because he wanted to ensure it was distributed properly. On the evening, I'll never forget, December 31st, Clemente boarded a plane filled with relief supplies, but the overloaded plane would never reach its final destination. It plunged into the ocean off the shores of Puerto Rico. This little eight-year-old boy was devastated, and I think that moment has guided my life for a long time. That same week, Howard Hughes, a man of great means, was there in Managua when the earthquake hit. His response was to get on a plane and far as, fly as far away as possible. Two men at the top of their games, one headed toward the need, one flew away. Earthly wisdom moves away from the hurt and toward our cravings. Heavenly wisdom moves toward the hurt and toward our saving. Anytime you have an opportunity to make a difference in the world and you don't, then you're wasting your time on earth. I guess it makes sense when your last name means merciful and forgiving. Clemente, ready to forgive. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may we listen to the wisdom from above more than we listen to the wisdom from below.
Amen.